0: Welcome to cast episode 22.
1: In this episode, we take on one of the
0: real big ones. Um, our last episode was on the Toccata and Fugue in D minor. And although that is a very well-known work and it's probably recognized by uh, millions and millions of people around the world, the clip that I just played for you probably isn't as well-recognized. And yet, as a piece, uh, it really towers above what we just listened to in the last episode. This is the second sonata for solo violin by Bach and we were just listening to the opening movement which is marked a, uh, a grave, um, kind of a serious slow movement it's in the, the whole, the whole sonata is in the key of A minor and we get A minor, A minor, we get a major mode for kind of a little bit of relief in the third movement and then the final fast movement is again in, in A minor um, that, that clip you just heard was played, performed by Monica Huggett. She specializes on the Baroque violin. She emerged in the 80s on recordings uh, alongside folks like Tan Koopman, uh, played with a number of British ensembles, did recordings with the Academy of Ancient Music, and really went on to launch a uh, specialized solo career doing chamber music. And her ensemble is known as Ensemble Sonnerie, sometimes just labeled Sonnerie. And they do um, uh, chamber music from the Baroque. She's also had a a more recent stint as an an educator at the Juilliard School in New York. And I've been a fan of hers for a number of years, ever since I first picked up her recording of Vivaldi's Four Seasons. Um, it was one that was new to me it was done with the raglan baroque players it was on virgin veritas as well as this recording by j s of works by j s bach the sonatas and partitas when you go out and purchase these you'll see these works marketed under usually a two disc set there's six total three sonatas three partitas and you can read a ton of Of information online about these They've been analyzed And they are They are one of the pillars Of Western classical music They've been inspiring To many different people If you are a classically trained violinist You eventually Have to tackle these Um, They are the types of pieces You'll get for Auditions to orchestras uh, And because they're so Well loved You'll hear them played sometimes as an encore. So you're a violin soloist. Doesn't even matter if you're playing Baroque music. Um, you know you're probably going to please everybody in the audience to whip off maybe one of the faster movements out of this collection. And so I didn't start with the first sonata or the first partita. It starts with sonata number one and goes to the first partita. The sonatas are kind of in the format that you might expect um, in that they're kind of a slow-fast, slow-fast orientation. Um, the form Bach chooses here, the the you know, where did these come from? So Bach, as we know, was a keyboard player, and he had lots of models that he, no doubt, was sort of playing off of when he wrote things like the French Suites, the English Suites. And we also know, if you've been listening to this podcast, that he could go all out and kind of reinvent the wheel and do things like a theme and variations, and he does the Goldberg variations. But even that wasn't that unique because we have a composer like Handel who's composing themes and variations. We have uh, a composer like uh, Alessandro Scarlatti who, even though his specialty might not be Keyword Works, does a theme and variations on La Folia. And so is Bach really reinventing the wheel here, or is he just kind of outdoing everybody else? And as you might expect, he's not reinventing the wheel. He just does this awesome job at writing a, uh, a set of works for solo instruments. And it wasn't unique to the violin. He... Also did it for the cello, as we've explored. And so this is his set for the violin. And there is some discussion about when he might have composed these. One one theory goes that when Bach was put into jail for being disorderly and uh, picking on a member of the community, I believe that's the story attached to the, the bassoon player he did not like. So he's put in jail. And he's basically uh, has time on his hands and has access to pen and paper. And you know he wasn't put in there for murder or something like that. He's he's put in there to say, hey, you're misbehaving. You're going to have to deal with this for a while. And so one of the theories is he might have written pieces like this um, while he was kind of holed up. Don't know if I believe that or not don't have a reason really to be strongly swayed one reason or the other it really doesn't matter to me if it was written in a in a jail cell or not um, this is just really high quality music one of the examples that i think is worth taking a look at if you have a chance is is the solo violin works of Telemann telemann wrote a series of fantasias and he wrote his each one centered in a key. And he, he he wrote more than what Bach did here in terms of just sheer numbers of pieces, but they never quite get to the profound level of these. And what do we mean by profound? Why are they great? So that's, that's what we're going to look at. I'm going to give you some different examples of how this has been performed, but I really don't want to make this a um, who's the best out there because... With a work that's so big like this and a work that's been so many times recorded, um, it would be just gosh darn impossible to pick one that was, you know, we could do it by track maybe or something like that. But uh, I'm going to definitely float some names out there today in this episode and as we in the future may revisit some of these pieces again uh, I'll throw out some additional names of some favorite performers, but I I specifically chosen a few here today to highlight a few things. And so we start with Monica Huggett. If uh, you were to read my review, this was not my favorite set of the Sanaz and Partitas. Um, despite the fact I really like Miss Huggett's playing in general. Um, she made some interpretive decisions here that, uh, as well as recording decisions that to me just didn't make this the strongest that it might have been. But again, it's hard to cast stones. I'm not a violinist. It's not like I can do better than her. So um, that's something to keep in mind. I think when you read reviews occasionally, when, when, when reviewers like myself might Call a few things out that concern us Or that we like or don't like Obviously reviewing is subjective I try to give a rationale sometimes about Why I like things But in the end I just like some things sometimes Because that resonates with me And that's that's something you got to remember um, That doesn't mean that It's a bad recording or it's a good recording Just because John likes it or doesn't like it It is simply my style, my preference that resonates with me. And that's the same for anything that people critically review. Uh, You've got to put a little bit of yourself into it. If I were to uh, review recordings, for instance, just on objective material, that might be kind of boring because we might have somebody who, who played exactly to the letter of the music but then failed to put some of their own uh, interpretation or their own feeling into the music, and it might come across very sterile to us, but hey, they got every note exactly right in the right timing or something like that. So you obviously, as a, as a listener, whether you're writing about it, talking about it, or just buying a recording and throwing it into the player or downloading it and streaming it, whatever you do today to enjoy this music, hopefully you're hearing it in some live performances as well. There's a whole set of values we bring to the table, and so, uh, yeah, this as a set, this wasn't my favorite, but you know, it's one I go back to. I re-listen to it because she was putting some different ideas into this, and this music really resonates with me, as I know it does millions of other people. as really, really good music, and so it's it's almost a, a psychological effect where we want to try to understand it. The best we can and sometimes it means listening to the recordings that might not be our absolute favorite all the time because a lot of people have different things to say and in, in a recording example like this tons of people have made recordings of this i didn't buy them all but this is one i bought because of the reputation of the artist and i still enjoy it i still listen to it i still put it on for friends um i just have others that i might say you know I had to judge, go with that one. But I wanted to start with it because I think um, her recording is a little raw and a little very honest. It's almost as if she's in the room with you. There's not a lot of reverb in that recording. And so uh, if you imagine sitting in the large room and she's on the other side, maybe by the window. The music stand is out, and she's just kind of giving you a private concert for you or a couple friends. That's the kind of feel this gives, and it, it's heightened even if you put on headphones. There's only one recording that I know of that goes beyond this. It's, it's one I have not purchased yet because I really don't know how I feel about it. I've listened to enough of it in terms of the previews. It's by Gunnar Letzbor, who is another period performer and he 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 kind of took maybe some of the ideas in this recording and went all out with it and what he did is he they placed the microphone so close to the instrument it captures literally no reverb at all and the effect is as if you were right there standing next to him or you were him playing the music and I would invite you to go check it out again. I haven't purchased it, but it intrigues me. I listened to it the first time; I thought this is awful. What were they doing? Then I read the background, the kind of thinking behind making a recording that way, and that sort of stuck with me in my mind. Well, that's kind of an interesting take on things. To experience it as close to the actual instrument as possible, and so the sound of that is the sound world is very different. You you hear the fingers on the on the. A fingerboard, you hear all those little nuances that would kind of get blended away a bit if you were standing in a in a concert hall of, of any size, really, a chamber hall to a big, you know, a place that Bach never might have imagined this type of music being performed. So, with that said, what is the first movement about? Um, it reminds me a lot of the cello suites. It's the it's it's immediate to me. That the pen that wrote some of those cello suites wrote this one, and one of the things that um, you got to get around with these pieces is Bach didn't write it for one single line. So you look at other composers. I use Telemann as 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 maybe the the easy one to compare. Telemann also wrote double, triple stops to kind of get the an idea of, of a harmony. With Bach here's even going further. With Bach, you can't really escape those extra notes. And in this first movement, he seems to even be playing with the bass line as its own little independent part. It's not just, well, here's a melody and we're just adding a few chordal things when it kind of makes sense or on strong beats to give you a sense of the harmony. Oh no, there's there's uh, there's a mind behind um two distinct parts and so you got to hear it on the instrument that as far as we know it was intended for but now i'd like to to have you listen to it on an instrument it wasn't intended for but yet it still seems to work really well and so this next example is on the guitar the grav from
1: bwv 1003 So in some ways, it was easier to hear. some ways, it wasn't easier to hear in that
0: performance by uh, Paul Galbraith. He put out this recording on the Delos label in 1998. And they are transcriptions of Bach's Sonatas and Partitas. They are written for guitar, but he didn't just use any guitar. He modified a guitar with uh, extra courses. And he actually developed a sound box for the guitar so that the sound would be transmitted off the bottom of the guitar and would be amplified a little bit in a little box um, that sat on the floor. And um, what's also different about the, about the way he plays this uh, is it presents the guitar in a somewhat different position for playing if you imagine a guitarist playing the fingerboard and the frets with the left hand and strumming with the right hand um galbraith is more positioned maybe like a cellist where the fingerboard is is more vertical um thus making it easier to play some of these these chords individual notes so i i take that as a point of departure i really like this recording. Um, But that bass line, it's a little descending bass line, and then you hear this rising tone. And uh, just as about right before where I kind of trail off with the fade-out, the the bass line kind of disappears a little bit while the melody comes. Um, And a descending bass, very, very common thing in the Baroque, especially slow pieces, we can think of things like um, the Bieber... Fifteenth movement of the mystery sonatas uh, for solo violin might be another model that Bach had access to. We don't know. It's, uh, this is not the best example for what may Bach have been modeling. Uh, of course, Bach. If you know these pieces, he writes this uh, from the other one of the other pieces. This chaconne, uh this big long extended mov- fifth movement, uh, where. We get this incredibly long, elaborate bass line, and he's improvising on top of it. This isn't quite that. This is a nice melody. It has a little bit of gravitas to it. Um, And right off the bat, he's kind of letting us know, Hey, this is a violin piece, but I'm not letting the bass line get away. At least not here at the beginning. So this is a nice kind of introduction. It sets the mood. Uh, it gives Bach the chance to kind of establish uh, a character for this piece. And I would say that the these minor moded first, second, fourth movements are kind of serious, right? This wasn't kind of lighthearted music. This is kind of serious uh, it reminds me a lot of the cello suite number two. It's written uh, on A minor, but I believe in C minor. If my memory's correct. Um, so it has this kind of serious, reminds me a little bit maybe of that Sarah Bond from the cello suite. And then we go into the, the second movement which is going to be fast. And Bach is Bach. He writes a fugue. Why not, right? He write, wrote fugues for the organ. He had two hands and and feet, and why not try to write something like that But for for an instrument that usually was playing melodies. It's got four strings, why not, right? Um, And it's a catchy theme, as we might expect, and it can be played kind of somberly, if you want. It can be played in a more virtuosic manner. Let's listen to see what happens on the guitar by Paul Galbraith with The Fugue
1: from BWV 1003. So I let that kind of the first big statement of the fugue to, to play
0: out there. So you could hear that whole thing, um, on the guitar to me, doesn't sound quite as challenging as I think it is on the violin. And it sounds to me, because again, it's on the guitar. It's on this instrument's being plucked. It sounds to me like it could be a keyboard fugue, right? Um, Sounds like, you know, those all those voices are kind of coming across with equal volume. Sounds like something you might hear on the harpsichord. Um, I will tell you that the tempo chosen there is is a little quick compared to what most violinists will play it at, um, which may be something he can get away with on the guitar. Maybe his artistic interpretation might have been something just to kind of, arrest our attention because it, it's a it's a lively theme that Bach puts out there. And if you're used to hearing it played more slowly, definitely kind of shocks you a little bit when you hear it. Since I said it was kind of like a harpsichord piece, let's listen to a version played on the harpsichord. Uh, this comes from the, uh, the release by Jean Rondeau. Uh, his inaugural... Bach album entitled Imagine
1: So what do you think? It's it's a catchy tune.
0: We've got this main theme, <laughs> got this kind of rhythmic rhythmic pulse and motive that's going on, and then in the part I just uh, stopped with, he starts introducing little chromatic pieces, um, and we've got these basically these two opposing themes going on. And again, it's meant for one instrument with four strings. Can't say enough about where Bach came with this and what kind of impact this type of music made on folks who discovered it. Um, It is always, as I've come to understand, kind of stay within the violin repertoire, although the public has not always um, necessarily known it. Um, when we had the the rise of solo violinists in the first past first part of the twentieth century, uh, all the big names, of course, would have would take, taken this on and performed it, and uh, of course collectors have recorded those re- collected those recordings. Um, and that that's an interesting lineage, if you will, of taking something that was probably not. Really well known by the general public when it was written, and it, it has stays dormant just in the hands of performers for a while. And then in the 20th century, it sort of takes off and becomes this really big deal. And we say, by gosh, look at this. Look what Bach left us here. Uh, was he a violin virtuoso? And that, that's what's weird about this in a way. Most of the music left to us in this era, that is of a very high quality. And we might look at, for instance, Handel's harpsichord suites as 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 a general package. You know, Handel was a keyboard player. We've got Handel's organ concertos. Well, Handel played the organ. Um, Bach keyboard, right? Organ, harpsichord leaves us the well-tempered clavier, leaves us the toccatas and fugues for the organ as an example, or leaves us the the, the six partitas for, for keyboard the Goldberg variations it's not surprising that we're left music by composers who were in themselves virtuosos of their instruments it is less usual to be left big pieces by composers who did not champion those instruments. And you'll prove me wrong by, by pointing at one or two examples and saying, well, look at that one. But to take another Baroque example, let's take Bieber. He supposedly played the flute, he played the viola da gamba, and he played the violin. Don't have a lot of in- uh, music for those other instruments, but we know he played the violin and... Of course, we celebrate. Um, not so much today his choral music. We don't celebrate. We don't have a terrible amount of it to celebrate with. But we tend to go to his um, violin pieces because he was a virtuoso violinist. You go to a Locatelli. You go to a Vivaldi. Vivaldi wrote some really great bassoon concertos. But if you're going to weigh those compared to the violin the violin kind of wins out. And so we get Bach here. we knew how to play the violin, but he was, for everything we know, was not the virtuoso level of maybe a Bieber or uh, a Locatelli or a Veracini or a, a Vivaldi at the violin. And yet, with what he knew about the technique, what he was able to do, what he was able to do with the cello, which we know very little about Bach's ability to play the cello. Uh, He leaves us these pieces that seem to work well on the instrument. They are challenging, but they have this virtuosity. And the virtuosity is different in a way, I think, than what we might expect to hear from a Locatelli. Locatelli was uh, a little slightly... Uh, he was contemporary with Bach, but but lived uh, some years beyond and is thought of as sort of the maybe bridge from the the Baroque to the more gallant style by the end of his career. He was a violinist, left us a collection of f- somewhat forward-looking concertos early on in his career at the Opus Three Art of the Violin. They were violin concertos that had kind of a, fresher style maybe a little more emphasis on melody and then he inserts these solo violin capriccios these these extended um, cadenzas if you will and really push the boundaries of the instrument and for Locatelli he kept going higher in the register forcing the violinist to come closer to his, his or her chin with his, with his fingers and really go at the end of the fingerboard thus uh, causing a change in the Baroque violin to get a longer fingerboard to accommodate this desire uh, and he wasn't the only one doing this, of course but he was part of the movement to get higher and higher in terms of the range Bach doesn't really take us in that direction with these he's not doing anything terribly um, idiosyn- He's how do I put this? He's not just giving us violin, violinistic-type uh, tricks or techniques for the sake of it. He's really taking music that just works. Works on the violin is, is somewhat um, providing a challenge for the violinist, in this case playing multiple independent voices against one another on the same instrument. And as I think you can probably pick up just from these two short examples, it works pretty darn well as music off the violin. Now, I haven't even played the violin version of you for you yet of the Fugue, but you've heard it now on the guitar and you've heard it on the harpsichord. And it's certainly, probably... Has affected you, and you're like, "eh, it's kind of a catchy theme there." I kind of like to hear some more of that, John. Don't don't fade out. I'd like to hear a few more notes. I'd like to see where Bach's gonna go with this. And in the last, we heard, "Oh gosh, he's starting to introduce chromatic notes," and, um, of course, chromatic notes in in any key like that, especially when they're doing things like falling or rising, tend to capture attention because they. They offer this. uh, Notes really don't belong within the texture, but usually signal a change in key center. Let's hear this on the violin. And I'd like you to hear uh, one of the recordings that I really have uh, liked. I think it's one of the stronger ones that's out there. And this comes from a violinist who is not in the Baroque tradition per se, although I'm sure the Baroque tradition, the historically informed practice has perhaps influence him somewhat, but this is Gideon Kramer, who uh, is a Latvian violinist. He's one of the, the guys that has been making recordings for a number of years, I believe, since the 70s, and I believe this is his second recording of Boxanas and partitas, and this was done um, several years ago on the ECM New Series label, and uh, I'll give a listen
1: to Gideon Kramer. So that's about as far as we got, I think, on the uh, on the
0: guitar recording by Paul Galbraith. Um, Galbraith. So what do you think? In terms of violinist, Kramer is not restricting himself to the sound world of Bach, uh, at least to what most people would understand. He's really, he's putting it all, he's playing as a uh, modern virtuoso trying to really, um, in some of those sections there, especially towards the end of my clip, he's he's banging out of that, of that violin and it it almost sounds like a struggle or a, um, uh, a th- almost a threat to the instrument when we get those multi-stopped chords. For those of you not sure what I'm talking about, violin is four strings. Most normally we play, typically I would say normal, typically we play with one string at a time. And composers would uh, maybe have two strings sound at a time by changing the position of the bow and the strings to to bow two at a time to get a small chord, two notes. And when you have two notes together that, that have those sounds together, you get a small chord if you play three together you get maybe a triad three three notes uh are playing a c major triad c e g you know, you'd, you'd play that on on three strings and uh, bach also tells us well hey here's a four note chord why don't you why don't you play four notes across four strings and to do that on the modern violin that has very tight strings with shape of the of the the bridge which has separated the distance between the angles of those strings in order to get more volume out of the modern instrument uh, you really have to try hard to almost come around um, and that is a point of controversy in box violin writing He's writing so much for chords and I think, Kramer's uh, solution here, which is to really accent those to the point of it sounding uh, athletic or like a struggle, is is kind of affecting to me. I, I like it, um, but it's done to the degree which I'm thinking, hmm, um, would it have been played this way in box day? Is, is there a mark in the music that says to really... Pound out those chords, and it's not. And one of the things that Kramer does, I think, very well in the interpretation, and this is goes for some of the other works as well, is really says, "Hey, I've got a modern violin. I'm going to play this thing to what I can do, and I'm not going to worry so much about maybe the sound world of Bach." Which is not to say he's 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 uh, doing something bad in that regard. It's just if he really wants to play out and come across maybe loud, he does. And then he will contrast that with very soft playing. and um, That interpretive freedom is something that I think a lot of Baroque performers shy away from. Simply because we don't know if that style of playing was um, typical. We also are playing on an instrument that doesn't quite have the dynamic range as the modern one does, with the modern bow, with the steel strings, with the longer fingerboard, all, all those things that make a modern violin carry a little more in a large hall. Uh, the other thing that this recording has, obviously you probably picked up on, is a lot of reverb, and when you're playing with those extremes, that almost seems to amplify the effect, and so we get this thing of multiple stopping, and that wasn't such an issue on the on the guitar, although that same issue exists. You've got strings. Um, Galbraith is, is doesn't seem as challenged by how to do that. Uh, it lends itself maybe to the the guitar technique a little, a little more, uh, and he can actually because he's getting all those pluck notes can actually pull them off. Um, and have them sound at once, if they're so positioned, we're on the violin, we're not plucking those instruments, we're bowing them. And so that, that gives us that uh, challenge of how to speak those notes. So that was, it's it's kind of a, almost a toe-tapping type of, of fugue, if you will. dun, 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 dun. It kind of has this pulse going to it, and where I ended up and, and fade out is, is kind of where this little episode happens in fugues. Where okay, we've 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 shown all the voices, we've we've played the themes in the different way. Now we're gonna have some fun, noodle around, and do some different things. And uh, I would encourage you to check out the entire fugue for that. Before I go there, I want to give you one other sound bite and I'm gonna use the the fugue again as, as the departure. I won't stop at the beginning this time so you can hear a little more of it. But this is, again is a transcription played on a very unique sounding instrument. Uh probably when I say very unique, yes every instrument has its unique flavor, but this is going to be a little more unusual, I think, probably from what you may be used to. Um I'll tell you more about the performer and the the disc it comes from after
1: the sample. So where we enter,
0: um, is what some of the material you heard before, goes off into this episode. You got to hear those multiple stop notes from the violin again. Didn't seem that big of a deal here. Had its emphasis, but didn't go overboard like maybe we heard it with Kramer. Uh, didn't seem to be as big a deal for this performer. This is actually played on the mandolin. This is Chris Thiele, who's, um one of the foremost players of uh, of the mandolin. Uh, I came to know him kind of late, I would think, um, on the Yo-Yo Ma uh, Goat Rodeo series. Um, there's now been, I think, two albums with with that title. Um, really great music. It's one of my all-time favorite albums. And Chris Thiele is is probably the biggest superstar on the, On the album, I would say he he eclipses uh, Yo-Yo Ma's contribution. Um, I think Yo-Yo Ma had a lot to do with the marketing and getting it out to our ears. Uh, But Thiele is a profoundly um, gifted artist on the mandolin. I've had the occasion to hear him live with uh, Edgar Meyer, who also appears in that recording, The Goat Rodeo Sessions. But here he takes on classical music. He's known for kind of a bluegrass style, um, jazzy type of playing, improvisation. And here he's playing. It doesn't get any more straight and narrow than Bach, right? You have to get all those notes. And you have to get them right, and you're putting yourself out there. And he he takes takes on the sonatas and partitas. This comes from the the first volume that's, that's been released. The second has not been released. So he gives us in this first volume access to sound number two and the sound of the instrument to me really is very intimate it has a dynamic range which I think supports the music it it doesn't sound that far removed for me of the sound world that we might be expecting with, with an instrument like the solo violin and you can almost imagine working this out perhaps in that jail cell and having this small Personal instrument that a mandolin to me seems to be, um, and kind of working things out. It just seems to work for me, even more so. Even though I like the guitar version that we heard, to me there's something a little more fragile and a little more um, quaint, perhaps, about this the sound of this instrument. As we heard the fugue, Bach goes off that little fancy, starts playing with the theme a little bit, repeats some patterns, and then as we fade it out again, he kind of goes back into this more formal uh, counterpoint that uh, folks would be expecting to see or to hear. Uh, And of course, we know Bach is the contrapuntalist. I point that out in almost every episode because the evidence is there in the music. But to Bach... He his mettle as a composer would be to show off this ability to take themes, to work them out, to transpose them, to fit the puzzle pieces together. And I think this piece works no matter what you play it on. As we've discovered with some of Bach's music, it translates really well to transcription. And so here was yet another example of This music written originally for the violin and now played on another plucked instrument, a string instrument, but one that makes it a little easier to overcome one of the challenges left by Bach, how to play these multi-voiced chords on an instrument that's used to playing one or two voices at a time. One of the solutions that's come out is the idea that, well, maybe Bach wrote this intending for it to be played with a uh, with a bow that didn't have a really tight set of hairs on it and if you imagine what a bow looks like you've got this kind of uh, strip of hair uh, horsehair that's that's being held tight by uh, a piece of wood above it it's held in tight with a with a nut and on a modern bow you can adjust the tension of the hair with something called the frog a little screw that will tighten that up and over over time the shape of that bow has changed Uh, bows were sort of you can think of them as experimental during this time people are coming with different designs some bows were were constructed in such a way that the wood part on top arced over you can imagine a rainbow maybe not to that deep an effect but you have this idea of the it's going over, and the, and, the, and the hairs are sort of straight. Um, and as, as time went on, the, the shape of that changed so that on a modern bow, the arc actually kind of goes in, um, which gives strength to the bow, allowing the hairs to be very tight and be, have a very crisp attack. Uh, it helps with volume. And over time, the length of the bow increased which enabled longer held and sustained notes, but it also took away the ability to have a lightness of touch because now this thing weighed more because it was longer. And that was a very abbreviated uh, tale about the violin over time. But there's definitely this this idea out there that's been circulating, and I believe there's been one or two recordings made where they've they've played this with a bow that's either been uh, the slack is the pressure on the strings is, on the hairs excuse me is actually um, held in place with a thumb, so that when you're when you have to play a chord like that instead of having to roll over the notes, you can actually play them simultaneously like we could on that guitar or on the on the mandolin or on the harpsichord. And uh, another guy came with an idea of, of, uh, of, of one that had very... You weren't, you weren't varying the tension over time. It was fixed. But it had a very high rainbow effect, if you will, for the wood. And it, it facilitated playing all four strings at once. And this has been debated by different folks. I'm not going to get into that debate. Uh, I think that the challenge for the violinist whether that was Bach's virtuoso contribution or that's his limitation as a composer for the violin, he wrote this really good music. And the next movement's kind of exciting because it's it takes this kind of formal counterpoint that we just heard, this, this idea of a theme and having things, this rhythmic pulse keep up in minor mode, and we relax a little bit. Da... I can kind of sing it to you. I'm not a great singer, so I apologize for that. But it's kind of this homey major mode. So if you want to simplify life in music for me just for a moment and think major mode, kind of happy. I won't say it's a happy piece, but it's definitely kind of relaxed, And to me, as I said, it kind of has this homey feel to it. It's it's a really neat movement. And in addition to having this very melody-centric aspect to it, it has this pulsing. Bum, bum, bum. In the bass. And of course, we don't have a double two-person team. We don't have a full basso continuo team. But you can almost hear that cellist lightly hitting those notes with the soloist on top. So this is the third movement. It's marked Andante, and it kind of makes sense to me. We want that pulse to kind of keep things going, but we get kind of this neat, attractive melody to go with it. And for me, it just kind of, it just relaxes the whole piece for a little bit. We just kind of live in this idyllic little spot and we're having a good time. We're going to hang out for a while. And just see where Bach takes
1: us with this melody. So talk about contrasts.
0: So we start with the harpsichord version by Jean Rondeau, and he kind of takes it fast <laughs> compared to some, of some, at least the other two examples I gave you here. But in general, he was he was doing a very brisk walk, if we're talking about an andante being kind of a walking speed. Um, but you heard that kind of pulsing in the bass. Boom, 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 boom. And I think... Especially in that piece, it really showed off the sound of his instrument. And I, and I do am a big fan of the Imagine album that he came out with. The more I listen to it, the more it uh, kind of resonates with me. And uh, my favorite piece uh, pieces on the album are the, um, the, some of those violin tracks. Uh, in fact, it's more favorite than the, the pieces originally written for the harpsichord that he includes, such as the Italian concerto. So we get that kind of fast pulse. It works for me. It works, but it's not typical. And we get Chris Thiele, who is, has a far more intimate sound, is taking it far more slowly, carefully. And then we get Gideon Kramer, who, who... Almost matches Thiele's pulse, maybe pushes it just a little bit, and to me, gets closest to the idea of, of a walking speed. I like his tempo choice, but then something weird happens for me when when those when those chords come in, which to me should be gentle and just suggestive of the harmony. Uh, Kramer is really kind of again pounding him out a little bit with with the uh, the rolling. Uh, which to me is a little bit out of character. Uh, that's where I'm going to start getting a little critical there and saying, uh eh, was, was there a way to play those, those, those stops without um, attacking the line? Kramer also does something, if you listen carefully, that the other two performers are kind of taking a, a more simplistic approach to how to phrase things, and Kramer is is playing with dynamics a little more. Uh, He's kind of dividing up phrase groups a little bit to do that, Um, which I'm not sure if, if Bach was thinking along those lines or not, but it's just an interesting aspect, I think, of his performance. And so you got this sense of, gosh, here's this music. It's performed a lot. It's because of that or it's because it's really great music. There's a lot of interpretive freedom that can take place. The last movement is probably my favorite. Um, it's kind of this perpetual. It just it just takes off. Um, we might expect something like a jig here, but this is this is something else. There's this, just this rhythmic drive that is at the heart of this, and I can't even fathom. How Bach writes something like this, right? You can take uh, so many of his themes, and you, if you study it, look at it for a while, like, okay, I could see it came up with that. He's framed a harmony. He's 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 set it up so we can go to another harmony. Uh, He's kind of kept some. I just don't know how you think of something like this. This this is something. This this is what makes this a genius to me. Is a piece like this. Um, And he starts out by hinting. And by hinting, I mean, this is a pretty in-your-face hint. This is not really a hint at all. He's doing this effect. He's looking backwards. And there was this uh, effect that composers would use in the earlier Baroque era called the echo. And it it was a gimmick, if you will, where you'd hear a theme and then you'd hear it again. And in the beginning of this, they're very clearly, Bach is using echo technique. And the intention was that it would sound like there was another instrumentalist in the cathedral, in the church, in, the, in wherever this is being performed, who might be playing the echo. And we have examples of music actually written like that, where the echo effect is actually not played by the same person. It's played by another person. And that person is to, is to position themselves far away. And it's, it's a cool thing. okay? It's, it's a cool effect, but it is kind of an effect. And here Bach takes that idea, and you, as the performer, have to do the imitation, and you have to change your sound, and Bach's big thing here as well. Forte and piano. This is the, f- the fourth and f- final movement of BWV 1003. And we're going to give you this by Gideon Kramer. Gideon Kramer, who really amplifies this. This is why I chose him as the violinist to kind of represent this work. Because he, he really goes all out to bring us this
1: echo effect in, in this piece. I know I'm doing a horrible thing by talking over
0: this beautiful music, but all of a sudden Bach just gives up. And now he's not doing the echo technique anymore. Give
1: it a listen. So I mentioned this kind of
0: perpetual motion things going on. So Bach takes this idea of the echo and setting us up with our ear to hear a theme, to hear it again, to hear a second theme, to hear it again. And it's got this little rhythmic kick to it and this, this push to it. And then he basically just starts taking that and going with it. I don't you know, even sing in the right notes, right? But you kind of... Know what I'm trying to sing Just because the rhythm keys are repeating (laughs) Repeated rhythmic uh, Motives And they're very simple But boy is it effective And it just helps this thing Go Now I'm not going to get deep into the analysis Of this piece because Frankly I don't have the time, and other people have done that. Uh, so I'm going to cheat and not do that for you. But I want you to think about the idea of two, the duality in the third movement. You have a bass and a melody. You had two major voices speaking in, in the fugue. And here's this idea of an echo effect and this idea of a binary thing. I don't know if that plays into box thinking of a binary type form where we get sections that repeat. And so after the part where I just um, faded out, the whole thing starts again. And I'm not sure how that works for me in terms of a theory, a a formal theory of, well, we've got an echo, this echo effect, and then we're kind of abandoning it, and here it comes again. Um, It seems to work all right. Nobody's complaining when they hear that music again. It's 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 effective music. So uh, it is what it is. Uh, let's listen to see what happens after the repeat. And for this, we're going to switch over to Chris Thiele on on mandolin.
1: So you got the kind of the end and then we're repeating the
0: that section again. Um Thiele really does pick up on the echo te- technique just as uh Gideon Kramer did. Um maybe not to the pronounced level that Kramer does with the violin, but there's he's definitely playing with that theme theme again a little quiet, that forte piano. And that's one of the few times that Bach tells us to do that. So we do that. But then as it, as it gets away from that echo technique, he's a little quicker this time to jump into what I call the alternate universe of what he's trying to do. And I'm looking for this duality, this idea of two, this idea of two voices. And it seems to me Bach is taking on a different uh, technique here. And Thiele does not really um, try to call that out. And so I'm not sure this is something he sees as, as important. But you've got a little theme that happens kind of up at the top, and you've got something that happens at the bottom. Uh, you've got this line, that little stuff that's happening at the top and at the bottom. It happens a couple of times. It's almost like a callback um, between two voices. And if we had those real echo violins, we had one that was playing and then one that was further back. You might imagine that, yeah, there could be some little back and forth with things. Um, and then it, it just kind of goes away again. We get overtaken with this, uh, the, the runs, this, these little rhythmic motifs. Um, and you sit back and go, gosh, Bach was using such little material to, at the start. And look what he's, he's come up with. It's a really interesting piece. And I think you're going to pick up on some really Uh, cool variations of the way different performers are going to take this. Before we finish, I'm going to give you a listen again to the version on guitar. Uh, This again is Paul Galbraith, who recorded this on a special guitar just made for these sonatas and partitas for the violin.
1: So with Galbraith, I
0: think it's a little easier at least to hear this concept of two voices. Maybe we've got this melody, and then just because of the separation and the clarity with which we get when we hear the guitar, um, it's easier to hear two parts a little bit. And those aren't necessarily always the two parts I'm thinking of, but it gives you yet another kind of window into box writing when we when we change up the instrumentation. Um, I also should point out that these are arrangements, and so the artists have made some concessions to adapting the music to their instruments. Um, So to come full circle, what makes this music so great? I'm not sure I've really begun to scratch the surface to answer that question, other than to show you, that despite the instrument it may have originally been written on, written for, Uh, Bach's music seems to transcend instrumentation. His virtuosity is not just tied up in an instrument. Although with artists like Gideon Kramer, there's definitely the capacity to show virtuosity on the instrument uh, with the gifts that performers have. It works on the violin very well. But I hope by giving you some different examples today, you've heard that it also can work well in other instruments. Among my favorites, uh, we've heard Paul Galbraith on the guitar. There is a certain clarity to his sound, and he definitely takes the idea of virtuosity at heart, I believe, in the tempos he's chosen for some of the faster movements. Um, I, I can't imagine sitting in a live performance starting that piece at that speed and uh just the fear that would be in my heart trying to hit all those notes uh so precisely and, and all correctly. Um we get quite a different, more humble perhaps, more intimate um more careful interpretation though actually my favorite uh of of the alternatives to the violin, and that's Chris Thiele on the mandolin. Uh, I don't know if the it's the 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 timbre of that instrument, or his approach, or a combination. Uh, Chris is 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 trying to play I believe play as faithfully as possible, but he's also adding his own interpretive elements, which um, are more uh, I would say focused not on the short side of phrases but on the big phrases Uh, you may not have been able to pick this up but he treats in this last movement uh, he treats the whole thing like a a little crescendo uh, where it starts off kind of soft and by the end he's saying ah Um, he's he's letting the instrument really sing uh, to kind of show hey this is really some cool music and to answer why it's great you know if you didn't if you didn't pick up in um, hearing it, just how kind of infectious it is, how um, Bach uses the combinations rhythm, harmony, and as I've said many times, just a well-designed theme. I'm going to call it a melody per se, although that's probably a, a, a word we could all use and basically get the gist. But the idea of a theme, it all starts with a well-wrought theme and you could say the same thing about beethoven's ninth symphony if you're familiar with that piece of classical literature right da, 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 da. and we keep hearing that over and over again and of course the symphony is so much more than just those few notes but when we look at it it's like well what's what's so cool about that symphony well it's just this idea of, of repetition um and, Of course, I just misspoke. I said Ninth Symphony, and I meant his Fifth Symphony. Uh, the Ninth Symphony is, is pretty gosh darn cool as well, but it doesn't have that that little rhythmic, thematical nugget that keeps showing itself. Um, and Bach, you know, where, where does Beethoven get that idea? Who knows? He, it could have been from could have been from a Bach Partita and Sonata for the violin. Um, folks, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. This uh, this was a difficult one to talk about in the context of a podcast just because the music is, is so well written and there's so much to say about these pieces in general. Since this is the first one in the collection, I want to add a little bit more to it than just to talk about the text itself. I also aim today to bring you some different interpretations of this some varying interpretations. I like them all. Uh, I mentioned at the start that maybe Huggett's wasn't my favorite overall collection from the historical perspective, and so I focused instead on a a violinist uh, of some renown who uh, really, really sets out to make a virtuosic statement, I believe, Um, and that's Gitt Kramer. Um, We get the very precise finger work very even tone very um, rich sounding guitar of Paul Galbraith and to take a very similar style of instrument a plucked string instrument that you hold Chris Thiele on mandolin very different effect and it's not all just the instrument of course it's the Interpretation of the performer and I would encourage you to check these artists out and maybe even compare these if any of these were new to maybe a performance you already own or are already familiar with there can be so much said with all of Bach's solo works it doesn't matter if it's for the violins or the keyboard that's just who Bach was and what makes it great is that he chose these these awesome themes that he could do some things with and for those of us who may have had the opportunity to study music, your eyes are kind of opened when you see what it takes to do what he does with some of those themes. And there was no better movement with that, to, for me, than the second and the third. That fugue, writing a counterpoint is not easy for me. It's not easy for most of us, and it was sort of the learned uh, art that Bach could contribute he, you know, he during his time, he did not study law like Telemann and kind of do music after he'd proven himself in the academic. That was sort of Bach's kind of nerdy thing, I believe, that he would uh, use to kind of prove himself that, yeah, I may not have gone to the university. I may not have, uh, you know, been a uh, considered the most learned of uh, Citizens, but I, I can do some pretty cool things, and Bach does that first in the second movement. And the third is just so cool because it's a, just a change of style. It's almost, it changes the idea of a performer on the stage, the formality of a performance where there's an audience, and all of a sudden we're turned kind of inside out and we're inside maybe the Bach home at night. And we've almost got this kind of soothing, repetitive bass notes, and on top of that is just this kind of um, humble, it's simple, satisfying melody that uh, is easy enough for us to kind of sing along with or just hum along with. And so, that all those different things come together in one piece for the soul violin. Um, an, another comparison if you're interested, and I'm going to stop talking at this point because I'm done with my examples, but there's another composer that um, likely Bach may have modeled this idea uh, for, and that's Westhoff. Westhoff was a German violinist and composer, and maybe perhaps next time we'll We'll compare his style of writing for the solo violin to Bach's. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm your host of Bachcast, John Hendren. You can find show notes and more episodes at my website, bieberfan.org.